to him. It was so easy that he decided to sell it again. And over a period of years, he averaged selling the Brooklyn Bridge twice a week to unsuspecting tourists. He sold it for as little as $50 and for as much as $50,000. He convinced the buyers that uh, they could make a fortune charging a toll to cross the bridge. He would produce some official-looking documents to sign the deal. And on several occasions, the police had to stop the new owners from erecting their toll booths. Parker was so successful that he branched out, and he began to sell Madison Square Garden and Grant's tomb. Parker was arrested finally for for fraud. In fact, he was arrested three times, and in 1928, he was sentenced to life in prison. They sent him to Sing Sing Federal Prison, where he ultimately died, but not before selling the bridge again to at least two prisoners and one guard. You wonder how people could be so gullible. But today, every day, people are still falling for internet and telephone scams. But perhaps the most dangerous scam of all is to reject the finished work of Jesus on the cross and replace it with works, with keeping a set of rules or following a set of rituals. We're going to notice three things this morning as we begin to look at what Paul had to say on this very subject to the Galatians. In fact, Paul begins with a rebuke in verse 1, the first part of verse 1. And it must have caused quite a stir when he said these words, O oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you that you should not obey the truth. Paul says that the Galatians are being foolish, but the word translated here foolish is not lack of intelligence, but rather it means an irrational plan of action, an irrational plan of action in the face of all the evidence necessary to reject it. Not mental deficiency then, but a failure to use the brain that God has given them to spiritually discern that the things that the Judaizers are saying are not true. I like the way the translation called the message translates verse 1. Because I think it really gives us a real sense of how it may have sounded to the original readers. You crazy Galatians, did someone put a hex on you? Have you taken leave of your senses? Something crazy has happened. For it is obvious that you no longer have the crucified Jesus in clear focus in your lives. His sacrifice on the cross was certainly set before you clearly enough. Now the word bewitched here has the idea of someone causing someone to stumble by giving them the evil eye or by casting a spell over them. Then, as now, people in many cultures commonly believe that some people had the ability to cast a spell that influenced the behavior 
of others. Now, in all likelihood, Paul did not mean he thought that the Galatians had literally been bewitched by a practitioner of the occult arts. But he says uh, this because their actions are so bizarre that it's difficult to explain it in any other way. Probably Paul is only using this language to refer to the effect that these fast-talking false teachers have had on some in the church. It seems to suggest that they have followed feeling rather than fact. They've followed emotion over a clear understanding of Scripture. Somehow, these false teachers have tickled their fancy. They've told them what they wanted to hear. In fact, Paul warned his son in the faith, Timothy, about just such things happening in 2 Timothy 4, 3 and 4. He says, For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers, and they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. What the Judaizers, these false teachers, have brought is a faith plus gospel, which is the belief that you are saved by placing your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ plus something else. In the case of the Galatians, it was faith in Jesus plus circumcision and keeping the law of Moses. In our day, some would add baptism or the Lord's Supper as necessary for connection to the church and for salvation. There are others today who want to introduce special conditions or requirements that supposedly add blessings to the finished work of Christ. They're looking for some kind of second blessing, an additional experience of grace, whereby they receive more of the Holy Spirit than they imagine was granted to them at salvation. Still others fall into some kind of legalistic system of do's and don'ts hoping to improve their standing before God by doing or not doing certain things. Paul is saying that we do not begin by faith and then grow by works. We are not only justified, that is, saved by faith in Christ, we are sanctified, that is, we grow in Christ by faith. The biblical truth that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, is the truth that guides our lives from the beginning when we are saved to the end when we leave this life. In any case, the Galatians have believed a delusion that has caused them to depart from a simple faith in the sufficiency of the cross. In order to break this spell, it seemed that they needed to look again to the cross. And so Paul's rebuke is followed by Paul's reminder in the second part of verse 1. And he looks 
and tells them, Before whose eyes Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed among you as crucified. He talks about two things here. He talks about, first of all, the method, and then secondly, the message. There is a purposeful contrast between the way the false teachers in the first part of the verse bewitched these individuals and how he in the second part clearly or publicly portrayed Christ. Clearly portrayed is a translation of a Greek word that means a public notice that is posted. We would say placard. When they put up a sign, yard sale, for rent, for sale. He's saying that is how clearly the crucifixion was presented before these people. Paul contrasts the false teachers' methods, which are underhanded and secretive, with his, which have been direct and open. And Paul is left wondering how the Galatians could have missed the message since it was so clearly presented. And then he begins to talk about the message itself. The message of the gospel has always been the message of the cross. Paul says of himself in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 23, We preach Christ crucified. It is the story of God's only son dying on the cross for sin and the implication of that death for the salvation of the world. It was a real person. It was a real cross. He was nailed upon that cross by particular individuals who would have been spattered by the blood of Jesus as they nailed him to that cross. He offered there the perfect once for all time sacrifice for sin. And it is this sacrifice that we know was accepted because the Father raised him from the dead. Paul literally says, having been crucified. Perfect tense, which denotes something that was done in the past that has present continuing significance. If ever an event qualified for that status, it is the crucifixion of Jesus. What the Galatians needed was to remember that Christ did everything that was necessary for salvation. He did it on the cross. How could they believe then that their works could add anything to what Jesus has already done on the cross? Paul's reminder led to Paul's rhetorical questions. Beginning in verse 2, this only I want to learn from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of law or by the hearing of faith? Are you so foolish, having begun in the Spirit, are you now being made perfect by the flesh? Have you suffered so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Therefore, he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you, does he do it by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Rhetorical questions are questions that really not questions at all because the answer is obvious, so, an- so obvious that it goes unanswered. 
the question is meant to engage the reader or the listener in a way that forces them to arrive at the desired answer. It is the answer that matters, not the question. If Paul were writing today, he would probably begin here by saying, just tell me this. The point is that he wants to know if they will answer his questions honestly, it will destroy all the arguments of the false teachers. So Paul now appeals to the Galatians' own personal spiritual experiences. Now, I'll back up just for a moment to say a word of caution is necessary. One can get carried away with the significance of experience in evaluating spiritual realities. The gospel is true regardless of my experience. We do not want to be guilty of reasoning from experience to truth, but from truth to experience. Experience is not to be discounted, but it must always be tested by truth. That being said, Paul says to the Galatians, it all comes down to this. It's either or. You are either saved by works your own efforts, or you are saved by faith, but it cannot be both. So Paul now asked them to consider their own experience, their own salvation, and answer the question, did it come by faith or did it come by works? The question that Paul asked is a very simple question with simple answer, but the answer has profound implications. So here are the four questions. First, a question about origin. This only I want to learn from you. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing of faith? Did you receive the Spirit? Or in other words, how were you saved? Was it by works of the law or by hearing the message of faith? And when Paul speaks of their receiving the Holy Spirit, he's referring to salvation. The obvious answer is that they knew that they had been saved by grace through faith. The presence of the Holy Spirit in the life of a believer is the greatest proof of salvation. In his letter to the Romans, Paul wrote in Romans 8, 16... The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. John writes the same guarantee in his first epistle, and where he writes 1 John chapter 4 and verse 13, By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us his spirit. What Paul says here helps to clarify an important truth about the work of the Holy Spirit. Some Christians teach that the Holy Spirit is a special gift that Christians receive sometime after their salvation. The belief that a second blessing is possible. Well, the belief in the second blessing implies that there are two kinds of Christians. 
those with the Spirit and those without the Spirit. And that's impossible. Paul says, and what he says here obviously rules that possibility out. The Holy Spirit permanently indwells all believers at the moment of salvation. Now, if you want further reference, I'll give you a couple of references because I don't know that I put them in your outline. Romans 8, 9, and 1 Corinthians 6, 19. The second question is a question about completion. He says, are you so foolish, having begun in the Spirit, are you now being made perfect by the flesh? If you know that you are saved by faith, how can you believe that you are being made perfect, which means complete, by the works of the flesh? The same word that is translated perfect here is used in Philippians chapter 1 and verse 6. It says, he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. So when Paul spoke of bringing faith to completion, it may be that the false teachers are telling the Galatians that what Paul has taught them is good, but there's more that he has not taught them. But it's not enough. If their salvation began by faith, it will grow and be completed by works, they teach. But it is foolish to believe that we could bring to completion by our own efforts what God began in us by faith in the cross. The third question is a question about suffering. He says, have you suffered so many things in vain if indeed it was in vain? Paul says that it was incredible to consider that the Galatians had endured so much opposition to their faith in Christ only to desert it, to follow something that could not save. When Paul was traveling through Galatia on his first missionary journey, recorded in Acts chapter 13 and 14, when his life was endangered, he could pick up and move on. But the Galatians lived there. They had to stay. So having stood so firmly in the face of harsh opposition, how could they be turned away so easily by the enticing words of false teachers? His astonishment at the Galatians' behavior caused him to wonder if indeed it was in vain. Not that their faith in the cross was in vain, But their suffering was in vain because perhaps they really did not believe. It's a call for a personal examination. Just as Paul would write to the church in Corinth, examine yourselves as to whether or not you are in the faith. There's a last question, a question about miracles. Therefore, he says in verse 5, he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you, does he do it by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Paul begins the final question with the word therefore, connecting everything that he's already said with what he's going to say. And the he that he speaks of here refers to God the Father, who has supplied the Holy Spirit among them. And so Paul says 
the one who supplied all the marvelous works among you, did he do it in response to your works or in response to your faith? The phrase among you can be translated also within you. So the miracles that are described here would include both the wonderful changes within the lives of these believers and the miraculous events that God has worked among the Galatian believers. Paul's combined argument is very powerful. If a person received eternal salvation through faith alone and received the Holy Spirit at the moment they believed and have the evidence of that Holy Spirit continuing to work in them, then how could they hope to improve on that by some human effort? So why should they have been so foolish as to let themselves be led astray into believing that God would add additional blessings only if they practiced the ritual laws of the Jews? Paul says, in effect, don't you see it? All these things that you have experienced so far contradict everything these false teachers have been telling you. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law? Were you saved by works of the law? No. Did you progress in your Christian life by your own works? No. Did you suffer for the sake of works? No. Did you receive miracles by the keeping of the law? No. Your whole life resolves around faith. So based on the answers to the questions, it is best for you to abandon the false teachers and continue to walk in the truth of the gospel. Unfortunately, the ability to be led astray is still with us. It seems that the church can still be bewitched just as easily today. Through the centuries, error after error has arisen. And we look back, we're able to see some of the errors of the past, but we seem blind to the errors of today. One motto of one of the denominations today is open hearts, open minds, open doors. It's a nice motto and has a catchy phrase, but, and it's a wonderful thing to have a soft and tender heart toward God. But sometimes people's heads are softer than their hearts. Their minds are too accommodating to wrong and unbiblical ideas, and they don't think things through to see if they are really true according to the Bible. And that is a sign of spiritual immaturity. The great old Scottish preacher of the past century, Alexander McLaren, said, We often court the coming of the evil influence, and we are willing to be fascinated and turn our backs upon Jesus. Mysterious, Mysterious it is, for man does not ordinarily empty his pockets of gold in order to fill them with gravel. Mysterious it is, for a thirsty man will not usually 
turn aside from a full, bubbling, lively fountain to see if you can find any drops remaining in the green scum, stagnant and odorous at the bottom of some broken cistern. But all these follies are sanity as compared with the folly of which some are guilty, times without number, when having known the sweetness of Jesus Christ, we turn away to the fascinations of the world. Let's pray. We recognize, Father, that the enemy is still at work, still offering a false gospel, false responses to take us away from a living and vital relationship with Jesus Christ. Father, I pray that you'd help us to guard our hearts. And to guard our hearts, first of all, by seeking to become ever more knowledgeable about your word so that we might know truth from error no matter where it may come from. Pray that you'd help us to be willing to stand for the truth even in an age in which that's not a very popular thing to do. Father, I pray that you give us strength, endurance, help us to walk the steps of faith. Father, there may be someone here this morning that has never really placed their faith and trust in you. And so, Lord, I pray that here in this place right now that they might recognize that they are sinners, turn to you, ask for forgiveness of their sins, receive what Jesus has done on the cross and complete payment for their sin. I pray that each of us who have already accepted forgiveness for our sins would live in the knowledge of that salvation, live in the knowledge of that forgiveness. Father, help us to walk for you in this world in which you placed us. We ask these things in Jesus' name. have a short invitation. If you're here this morning, God's spoken to you in some way, maybe this is the time you need to respond. If you don't know how to go about being saved, you come, we'll have someone take a Bible and show you. If you've prayed this morning, accept the Lord Jesus in your heart, we'd love to rejoice with you. Maybe there are other decisions that you need to make this morning about baptism or church membership. Whatever that may be, I'd invite you to come right now while we sing.